and welcome to another edition of ABI Podcast. I'm Melissa Jacoby, the Graham Keenan Professor of Law at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and I'm also the Robert N. Zinman ABI Resident Scholar for Spring 2016. We're here today to talk about energies in the oil and gas industry, what the special legal issues are and what we should expect to see, and we're very fortunate to have with us today Deborah Williamson. She's a member of the law firm Dyke McCock Smith, She's the author of When Gushers Go Dry, The Essential of Oil and Gas Bankruptcy, published by the American Bankruptcy Institute, and also was a member of the ABI's Commission to Study the Reform of Chapter 11. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you. So it's often said that energy cases are quite different from Chapter 11 in Chapter 11 than for other industries. So what do you see as the most distinctive features for oil and gas cases? Well, I think what we we see, and we've seen this over the last 30 years, um, although it's an industry that's tied to a commodity price, and our booms and busts are generally tied to the price of the commodity of oil or gas, the businesses themselves are not commodities. And individuals who are not really that familiar with oil and gas sometimes have difficulty understanding that not all properties are created the same, and that, you know, either you may want to be in West Texas, uh, or you may want to be in Louisiana in the shallow waters, your valuation, your, your, how you evaluate the properties, how you restructure are, are going to change dramatically from where you are. Another thing that's different this time is that we're not used to having in this country a national uh, oil and gas industry. And this time, because of the shell play, Oil and gas prices are impacting not just Texas or Colorado or North Dakota or Utah, but they're having an impact on, on New York and Pennsylvania and other states that have been the, the beneficiaries if you, of, of the shale revolution and having production in their own backyards when before it was a, a, literally a, a distant concept for them. So can you talk a little bit about the financing of the industry right now and how that might have implications in a Chapter 11? We, we have the traditional, uh, you know, first lien bank debt, which is usually a reserve borrowing base. And that's based on uh, a, a model of what the value of the producing properties are. And, and that valuation does not generally take into account the value of the non-producing property. And, and it's important to kind of to remember that oil and gas is produced, um, you know, by wells, and, and wells are on leases, and quite often the leases, especially with the shell, are, are hundreds of thousands of acres. And you only value the wells that are producing and not the acreage that has the potential to produce. However, investors, and often that includes the second lien holders or people that are, you know, in the, the bonds or other places in the debt structure or the capital structure, they see value in future production and wells that may be drilled on, on new leases or existing leases and that's what's a little different about, uh, or very different about oil and gas cases, is that the value is often on something that today would not be typically, put, a bank wouldn't put a lot of value on it, but investors do because they see the future. And who are these investors? Well, they, they're, they, they're everywhere. They're, they're funds, they're hedge funds, they're PE funds. Uh, you're not really seeing traditional lenders uh, below the, the first lien debt, but they may be participating in second lien debt. You've also seen a lot of creative financing over the past few years where you've had maybe not direct loans to on the oil and gas properties. You might have had what are 
VPPs, volume production payments, which is basically a way of acquiring uh, title to future production. Um, there's been some questions surrounding that, certainly out of some cases uh, that came out of 2009, 2010. Uh, you also have net profits interest, the same, same type of approach where a right to future production is assigned and, and money is advanced in order to do that. So you have both um, lots of different types of lenders or sources of capital in the structure, but you're also having some creative methods of moving that capital into an existing structure beyond just a loan based on what the value of the reserves are. So it sounds like valuation is pretty critical, as it often is in financially distressed businesses, of course. What kind of special valuation issues do come up here, then? Can you describe those issues? Certainly. The if, the questions always come up. What price stick are you going to be using? Um, are you going to be in and that is often proprietary, certainly to a bank, when they're sitting with the reserve borrowing basis. But there can be some real debates with them, with a court as to what's an appropriate, uh, what do you believe the price is going to be over the life of the well? Because that's how you value uh, your 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 reserves. You value them over the life of the well, and who knows what you know? You so your expert has to say they believe that in 2016 the price will be X, and in 2013 the you know 2018 the price will be Y. And that, so that was often an issue for the court is, is what are the projections and how accurate does the court believe the projections are for a particular evaluation of the producing property? And then you have issues on what do you think the decline curve will be? So for if, if you, again, if you're of a shale well, you generally have a fairly dramatic decline after a, two years or so of production. So you, the amount that's being produced will be reduced, but it will be very steady over the life of the, over the remaining life of the well. So you have issues there. Uh, the cost, the CapEx, built into uh, the valuation is what is it going to cost you to continue to drill wells, and do we agree that the projected CapEx for each well is accurate? What's the history of this particular company as against their peers? What's the, what's the experience in that particular part of the country as against other parts of the country? So CapEx, price deck, uh, and then the production volume uh, projections are issues that you, you always have to deal with in valuing oil and gas properties. So another element in these cases seems to be special contracting issues. You've mentioned a couple different kinds of, of arrangements already. Can you, can you talk about how the contracts in this industry might, might affect a bankruptcy? Certainly. Well, it, it's one of the things that we that that if you're new to the industry to understand that an oil and gas lease in most states, because you have to look to state law, but in most states, an oil and gas lease is not a lease like you and I think of uh, under the bankruptcy code. It's it's actually a, a, in in Texas in particular the phrase is it's a defeasible interest in real property. You actually own that that piece of real estate and the right well the the right to extract minerals from that piece of real estate. And you can lose the right um, if if you fail to to continue to drill on the lease, or you can earn a right if you're if you're a party to what we call a farm out. And a farm out agreement basically is party A has the lease but doesn't want to spend the money to drill, and goes to party B and says if you'll drill or pay for all or part of the drilling costs, then you can earn. Uh, an interest in this particular well or rights in the particular lease, and that's called a farm out. And the bankruptcy code actually recognizes the rights 
par- parties earn in a farm out, even if it hasn't been recorded yet. So mm. you've got farm outs. You've got the character of what a lease is. You have issues with uh, there may be offshore leases, and in that case you're dealing with the federal government. You may have other leases that are being impacted by um, other governmental agencies. In Texas, the, the state owns quite a bit of the mineral interest, and so you often are dealing with that. And then within it, when you're calculating what what I, what's the company own, not only do you have to look at the leases, not only do you have to look at to where they have the rights to drill, you need to actually look at what their percentage of the production is. So you hear about royalties, and that's usually a, a percentage that is of the production that's paid to the underlying original or successful successor owners of leasehold interest. But people can convey away interest in production through what's called an overriding royalty interest, the net profits interest I just spoke about. Uh, you may have a working interest assigned. So there's ways to convey away a percentage of the production, which obviously can impact what what the debtor, if there is a debtor, owns. And that's not often clear from the books and records. And certainly you may have to go actually into the, the, the county's books and records, the, the deeds of trust records, to figure out what a debtor actually owns in each well. So have bankruptcy courts, I'm not sure how many times bankruptcy courts have had to engage with these issues and in interpreting these agreements in the event of a dispute, but have they created uh, conflicts and, uh, and disputes about about how to characterize these agreements? Well, I think what the areas that we're going to be running into um, is, first of all, is are the interests uh, uh, a real property interest, in which case we look to the state where the property is, or is it an interest in personal property? In that case, then we look more to the state of incorporation. So is it, do you perfect under the UCC, or do you perfect under real estate documents? And that, that goes back to the characterization of, of the interest. For example, uh, a net profit interest I was talking about, which is a right to production. In some states, that's treated as personal property, and it's treated as a contract that can be rejected. In other states, that's treated as a conveyance of title, and it's treated more as a real property interest, and you would perfect under the real property records. So first, so are the courts addressing some of these issues? They have. There aren't a lot of decisions out there uh, on, on some of the the, the, these types of conveyance issues, um, there's a few, and you're going to have conflicts, but the conflicts may be as much as anything because of what trying to decide what law applies, less so than, than having an actual debate or, or disagreement about what should be the answer once you've decided what the law should be. Sure. State law plays a, a tremendously foundational role, clearly, in this area. It sounds also like this is an issue for the avoidance powers and that parties may be looking to avoid security interest to the extent or these conveyances to the extent they're not perfected. Well, uh, you have avoidance powers for perfection. You may have uh, arguments that is it a disguised financing. That We had that with the ATP case, interpreting judges interpreting Louisiana law. Uh, and then you may have issues as to future rights? Did you actually convey a right to the future uh, the future production? So there's a lot of issues that are going to be coming up uh, as we work our way through this current bust, assuming that the parties resolve them and don't settle them. Sure. We know there's a strong encouragement to settle in the event of disputes, particularly in the bankruptcy system. 
So let's shift gears a little bit to some of the environmental issues that might come up, and particularly cleanup liabilities. Uh, are there any particular trends or issues we should especially look out for here? There is. The, every time a well is drilled, there is an obligation under state law or federal law or wherever you are to once the, the life of that well is finished, to plug the well, and then they call it plug and abandon, to plug and abandon. So, and that obligation, it, it, it exists from the time the well is drilled, but, it, but it, it's not ripe until production ceases. The cost to P&A to P or plug and abandon a well can vary dramatically from where you are. You know, if you're in offshore, it's extremely expensive. You can imagine if you try to plug and abandon a well in the Gulf. It's, it can be very expensive, even if you're in shallow water. Um, and there may be wells that are uneconomic to produce, but the cost of the P&A may be so expensive, you're going to find the producer trying to kick the P&A cost down the road by continuing to have uh, small amounts of production coming off the well. What we're starting to see, though, is the environmental authorities coming into what few cases that have really been actively filed and with sales that have gone forward and raising their hand and saying, we want some assurances that the P&A obligations will be taken care of. You're also seeing the predecessors in title uh, coming in and saying, you know, we owned that well at some point or some interest in that well at some point. Maybe we drilled it. Maybe we owned it for a few years for some of these longer wells. And if you're in the chain of title, you have potential exposure as well for the PNA obligations. So both governmental authorities who are concerned about environmental and predecessors in title who are concerned about the governmental authorities coming after them are interjecting themselves in, are injecting themselves into the bankruptcy cases and saying, we, need, we want some assurances that this PNA obligation will be taken care of by the debtor or by the buyer. And those costs can be quite high. So in light of that, are there, are there circuit splits that would affect where a debtor might file to address those environmental liabilities and have fewer responsibilities for them? I don't think so because generally it's going to be, it, it, it's, it's environmental. It's, uh, there's been very little in the way of case law mm -hmm. other than the Fifth Circuit saying that a Chapter 7 trustee cannot abandon a P&A obligation. So it is treated as if it is any other type of environmental obligation. And I think the majority of courts will look at it that way as well. Uh, somebody has to pay an AOL, uh, and and leaving that for the for the for a governmental authority uh, is is not something I don't think any of the courts will look kindly on. So we can't talk about potential Chapter 11s without considering the use of 363 sales outside of the context of a Chapter 11 plan. So Bloomberg just had a story today about bargain hunting and auctions in energy bankruptcies. So can you? comment on the potential frequency of 363 sales in oil and gas bankruptcies, which we could expect to see? Well, we haven't seen very many of them so far. Uh, we've seen some early cases, some that were filed last year. A few of them had some sales. But to be honest, the sales were a little rocky. Um, and so there certainly was an increasing emphasis on doing internal reorganization. Um, the Some of those struggled uh, because they were built on certain pricing assumptions, which assumptions turned out to be too high. Um, and so we just have not seen a lot of bargain hunting yet. A number of, so much money came into the oil and gas area 
14 and 15, late 14, early 15, uh, many of it by parties who are interested in having an ownership interest or a right to production in the future, knowing or anticipating at some point the price will go back up. So we haven't seen a lot of wholesale selling yet, and we haven't seen a lot of bottom fishing or bargain hunting yet on a, on a wholesale basis. Uh, don't know that that's going to change. There's certainly a lot of money out there looking to do it, um, but haven't seen, you know, certainly not in the big cases, a lot of 363 sales uh, teed up yet, and don't know that we're going to. So we're going to end by talking a little bit about potential legislative reform so you were a member of the ABI Commission to study the reform of Chapter 11. And while there was not a specific industry focus of that report, it was a fairly comprehensive look at what might improve Chapter 11. Is there anything in particular that you want to comment on with respect to the oil and gas industry that would be useful? Or if there are things that the Commission report didn't address that you think should be on the legislative agenda or that we might expect to see? I think that you're going to be to be seeing, uh, and we saw a little of this that came out of the um, Sim Group case, Sim Crude case, where states are certainly Texas and Oklahoma have taken some efforts to protect the rights, not so much of the E and P company, but the rights of the owners, uh, well, the owners of production. Uh, particularly when put into a midstream uh, environment and protecting the rights of parties, royalty owners, for example. And uh, Texas and Oklahoma amended their UCC. Uh, unfortunately, when Sim Crude filed, it was a Delaware corporation, and the court said that Texas UCC and Oklahoma UCC did not apply. And therefore, there was no particular protection of the Delaware UCC. I think that you're going to see, at least for some, maybe some examination of what rights, if any, need to be looked at on a personal property basis under the UCC. Uh, But as far as what's in the commission report, I don't think there's anything that's particularly unique to oil and gas cases other than the one that you're starting to hear is the valuation issue, Um, foreclosure value, and what do you do in an environment, uh, and I'll use Texas again as an example, Texas, you get to foreclose one day a month, the first Tuesday of the month. I don't care if the first Tuesday is the January 1st. That's when we do our foreclosures. And so, and no matter what else you want to do, if you're not posted 21 days before that, you don't get to foreclose on first Tuesday and you must wait another full month. So what do you do for valuation, particularly when you're, if we're going to go with foreclosure value, if indeed you're prohibited from foreclosing? And you can't conduct a share of sale of an oil and gas lease because you have to do, a, a, at least in Texas, a real, a real property foreclosure. What do you do with that? You know, I don't know. It's it not something we, we specifically addressed, but I think it's an issue that's being looked at now. Is, is, is there anything to protect if, if you, the lender, couldn't have done anything? And I think that's one of the issues that's going to be litigated if it's not resolved in some of the cases that are pending. So that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank you, Deborah Williamson, for joining us. And thank you for asking. And uh, this is the ABI Podcast. We will see you the next time.